Welcome to another episode of Axioms of Liberty Podcast, where we dive deep into the philosophies of liberty, freedom, sovereignty, and libertarian thought to help you build a better foundation to understanding your world. And here we begin again, another episode of Axioms of Liberty. We're going to continue reading the myth of national defense, and we're going to start off exactly where we left off. The Rise of the Sovereign State the borders of law and order. The myth one has to debunk in order to assess the relationship between the provision of law and order and the rise of the modern state is that this political institution is merely a natural and organic outgrowth of political power. Old as the history of mankind or organized society, actually, it would be wise to dispose of the qualifier modern, only the state is modern, whether we see its cradle in the Italian system States after the Peace of Lodi in 1454, or in Western Europe, Spain, France, and England in the 1600s. One thing is clear. The state gradually emerged in the course of the 15th and the 16th centuries and found its first mature form in the 17th. After a summary of the chief traits of the state, organization, sovereignty, coercive control, the population, centralization, etc., Gianfranco Poggi affirms, Strictly speaking, the adjective modern is paleonastic, for the set of features listed above is not found in any large-scale political entities rather than those which began to develop in the early modern phase of European history. Oakshot seemed to be conscious of this peculiarity of the state when he affirmed that the somewhat novel association of human beings which came to be called the states of modern Europe emerged slowly prefigured in early European history, but not without some dramatic passage in their emergence. For the most part, the territories of modern states were newly delineated. They were the outcome of movements of consolidation in which local independencies were destroyed and movements of disintegration in which states emerged from the breakup of the medieval realms and empires. The second myth we must dispose of is the belief, shared by most historians, that the rise of the state contributed to the general cause of human liberty. In other words, that it has been a progressive factor in the history of mankind. Instead, it must be seen as a revolution that upset the old order, granting privileges, immunities, and rents to some, and obliterating them for the rest of society. As Charles Tilley put it, the European state-makers engaged in the work of combining, consolidating, neutralizing, manipulating a tough and complicated and well-set web of political relations. They had to tear or dissolve large parts of the web and to face furious resistance as they did so. The history of liberty is rather to be found in the attempts to restrain the powers of the state, from the fight to persevere medieval freedoms and community privileges to the struggle against the concentrations of power in a given center, whether a king or a parliament. Liberty, as well as law and order, was secured, and in some cases much better at different stages of European history, when a monopoly of violence was given over a territory was simply out of reach. Although we are primarily concerned here with the state provision of law and order, one must not forget that the self-governing communities of the Middle Ages in Northern Italy and Central Europe offer significant examples of a completely different way of guaranteeing peace and security. In the golden age of communal liberty, which lasted in most parts of Europe until the 16th century, but in certain areas like Switzerland much longer, merchants and citizens formed their own statues regulating passage, immigration, and exchange. In short, everything related to peaceful and non-coercive government. During these times, there was no clear-cut definition of power over a given territory. As there was no borders in the modern sense, an institutionalized power always had an antagonistic counterparty claiming allegiance from the same subjects. The result was that every medieval command was actually nothing more than the claim subject to be opposed and constrained by an institutional network of competing counterclaims. In Freedom and the Law, Bruno Liani stated that an early medieval version of the principle, no taxation without representation, was intended as no taxation without the consent of the individual to be taxed. And we are told that in 1221, the Bishop of Winchester summoned to consent to a scogate tax, refused to pay after the council had made the grant on the ground that he dissented and the exquelcher upheld his plea 
We know also from the German scholar Gierike that in more or less representative assemblies held among the German tribes according to Germanic law, unanimity was requisite, although a minority could be compelled to give away. It was not only what has been simplistically called medieval pluralism that guaranteed the impossibility of any state-like organizations, but rather the forms of the judicial relations between individuals and rulers. In medieval society, the lives and properties were not readily accessible to the king, nobles. As Charles H. McQuain pointed out, this property, which a subject had a legal right in the integrity of his personal status and the enjoyment of his lands and goods, was normally beyond the reach and control of the king. At the opening of the 14th century, John of Paris declared that neither pope nor king could take subjects' goods without his or her consent. It seems quite difficult to conceive of a state without the attributes of the state, that is, the possibility of disposing at free will over their lives and properties of its subordinates. Clearly, what was beyond the reach of the king and nobles during the Middle Ages is now available to democratic majorities, and the whole story of the state is how we got from here to there. Prior to the birth of the state, the predatory effects of political powers on individuals was minimal, compared to other areas of the globe or to what happened later on the same continent, and in any case, the citizens always retained their exit right. This kept a check on political power and is singled out by many authors as one of the primary cases for the development of limited territorial predator in the West. Meanwhile, there was no single source of law and order. The production of security was never considered a district institutional affair, but rather a concern of the whole community. For several centuries, customs, traditions, and ancient Roman laws worked together in assuring a judicial order. Law in the Middle Ages was a way of resolving conflicts, but it was kept a more or less private business. There was no organic conception of a social body, and thus crime remained a private matter to be taken care of with well-defined rules. In other words, crime was never considered an actual social problem, a wound inflicted on the collective body. This, in turn, implied that the victims were the center of any lawsuit. Redress was done from the point of view of the victims, never a supposedly wounded collectivity. Even when feuds broke out, which was quite often, the families involved were asked to reestablish the public peace, but very seldom were the perpetrators of crimes punished once peace was restored. In a peculiar sense, words as crystallized ideas have consequences. The medieval period was definitely over when, at the end of the long gestation, the word state was used in the modern sense by Nicciole Machiavelli. The Florentine asserted the right at the beginning of his most famous work, The Prince. All the states, all the dominions under whose authority men have lived in the past and live now have been, are either republics or principalities. And the emergence in political theory of the cluster of ideas associated with the state is largely a Machiavellian legacy, as George Sabine put it. Machiavelli, more than any other political thinker, created the meaning that has been attached to the state in modern political usage. Even the word itself, as the name of a sovereign political body, appears to have been made in the current modern languages largely by his writings. However, in Machiavelli, we find little concern for the public peace, tranquility, and security of the citizens. When the word security is used, it is always used in reference to the prince's possessions. Quote, among kingdoms, which are well organized and governed in our own time, it is that of France. It possesses countless valuable institutions on which the king's freedom and action and security depend. For our purposes, Machiavelli is important because although a republican at heart, he saw the king and the kingdom as a protagonist of the new era. From the 16th century, it was left to the monarchical absolutism to develop the notion of the organization of power through an artificial person, the state. The novelty of such a political creature was that the entire political reality was reshaped through offices, entities, and laws. The new body of politic transcended individuals as well as sovereign. It did not represent anybody. It simply just existed and was nurtured by myths and produced by historians as well as politicians. First and foremost, the myth of having always existed. As Lumen has noted, quote, Following the proclamation of the sovereign state, especially in France during the second half of the 16th century, historians went to work. The present needs as a past adaptable to it. 
In this context of political modernity, the probable of law and order arose as a specific state problem. The first and foremost duty of the state towards its subject became of the provision of security, or, to be less naive, the state has aggregated to itself a compulsory monopoly over police and military services, the provision of law, judicial decision-making, the mint, and the power to create money, unused land, which was considered public domain, streets and highways, rivers and coastal waters, and the means of delivering mail. But above all, the crucial monopoly is the state's control over the use of violence, of the police and armed services, and of the courts, the locus of ultimate decision-making power in disputes over crimes and contracts. Modern Political Thinkers Sovereignty as Security The rise of the centralized state apparatus that particularly claimed a monopoly on the use of force within a given territory went hand in hand with an intellectual pursuit of describing such a novelty. The Plidento Polentes became the goal towards which the king moved consciously to reach it a long road stretched before them, for it was necessary to destroy all authorities other than their own and that they presupposed that the complete subversion of the existing social order and the slow revolution established that we can all call sovereignty. The French thinker Jean Baudin in the late 16th century attempted to validate the power of the king against any other claim and thus produce a work that is considered the starting point for any history of sovereignty. The ruler was offered to the gift of a totally new concept. That is the absolute authority over his kingdom. Subject only to the divinely ordained natural laws, but such an innovation had to be dressed in old clothes. Sovereignty is the absolute and perpetual power of the commonwealth, which the Latins called the maestes, the Greeks acra excoricia and corin arce, and corin poletemtuma, and the Italians segrenora, while the Hebrews called it tomace shevite, that is, the highest power of command. Bodin's intellectual efforts, coupled with the institutional developments that were taking place in Europe at the time, brought about a break with the medieval politician tradition. In relation to well-known historical events, Bodin was writing in a period of intense religious conflict in France, at the height of the religious wars that threatened to destroy the country, and addressing social cultural, and political needs of his time, the French thinker discovered the notion of sovereignty and associated it with an institutionalized reality. Sovereign authority became the absolute power of the state, neither temporary nor delegated, nor answerable to any particular power on earth. The only limitations to the power of sovereignty were the laws of God and nature. There is no place for anything like the concurrence of the subjects in determining the course of the sovereign because sovereignty is not limited. The crucial point of the sovereign majesty is that it can give laws to its subjects generally without their consent. But what is it there to perform? The first duty of the sovereign power is to find solutions for conflicts naturally arising in society. The task is to show that the forces that generate the conflict are unable to provide a solution to it. Once this is accepted, and because a permanent state of war is intolerable, it follows that a sama potes, a locus where decisions must be taken, become a self-evident necessity. The sovereign need not to be an extraordinary gifted man. Here we see the modernity of Bodine in vis-a-vis -vis Machiavelli. The only important thing is that someone has the power to decide for everybody without restrictions the function attributed to the sovereign power. Not the quality of the prince will render his actions just and fortunate. It is the birth in political thought and of institutional reality. Some contemporary political philosophers, far-reaching visions notwithstanding, sovereignty is very much a state concept, as in the days of Charles Loisse, who asserted, Sovereignty is entirely inseparable from the state, for sovereignty is the form which causes the state to exist. Indeed, the state and sovereignty in the concrete are synonymous. Sovereignty is the submit to authority by which means of the state is created and maintained. It was up to Thomas Hobbes to reinterpret the same category discovered by Bodine in terms of social and political strife for England that parallel those in which the French thinker wrote. The framework created by Hobbes has had so much more of a lasting impact on social philosophy. As Hobbes put it, the myth of the collective security can also be called the Hobbesian myth. 
Thomas Hobbes, and countless political philosophers and economists after him argued that in a state of nature, men would constantly be at each other's throats. Homo homin lupus est, put in modern jargon, in the state of nature, a permanent underproduction of security would prevail. Hobbes accentuated the institutional characteristics of the sovereign power, as well as the necessity for preserving the public peace. In fact, the only times when citizens seem to have certain rights vis-a-vis the sovereign is when the latter does not perform his duty to provide law and order, a contemporary historian asserted. Hobbes deserves credit for inventing the state as an abstract entity separate from both the sovereign, who is said to carry it, and the ruled, who, by means of contract among themselves, transfer their rights to him. Hobbes' sovereign was much more powerful than any Western ruler since late antiquity. The supreme power, be it vested in an omnipotent assembly of, or a king, has a right to the obedience of his subjects. And because the end of this institution is of peace and defense of them, all the citizens, and whosoever has the right to the end has the right to the means, it belongeth of right to whatsoever man or assembly that hath the sovereignty to be the judge both of the means of peace and defense, and also of the hindrances and disturbances of the same, and to do whatsoever he shall think necessary to be done, both beforehand for preserving of peace and security by prevention of discord at home and hostility from abroad, and when the peace and security are lost for the recovery of the same. The great antagonist of Hobbes in the 17th century England was John Locke. As far as we are concerned, only one difference must be kept in mind. Hobbes defends government as a peacemaker, Locke's as a rights protector. Locke's concept of the state as a man-made artifact for the protection of life, liberty, and estate in a word property puts him in a different class of thinkers. The state is still the provider of law and order and social peace. However, it is limited by a major constraint, namely the production of the individual's natural and inalienable rights. This is the peculiar Lockean notion of law and order property, the sum of individual rights in the state of nature, minus the individual right of self-defense, which is forfeited upon entering into civil society, must be guaranteed by the state monopoly of force. Obedience, however, is not granted unconditionally. The reason why men enter to society is the preservation of their property, and the end, while they choose and authorize a legislative, is that there may be laws made and rules set as guards and fences to the properties of all the society to limit the power and moderate the dominion of every part of me the member and society, for since it can never be supposed to be the will of the society that the legislative should have the power to destroy that which everyone designs to secure by entering into society, and for which the people submitted themselves to legislators of their own making, whenever the legislators endeavor to take away and destroy the property of the people or reduce them to slavery under arbitrary power, put themselves into a state of war, with the people who are thereupon absolved from any fur further obedience and are left to the common refuge which God hath provided for all men against force and violence. The intellectual pursuit of almost non-sovereign state, or at least a limited state, bound by consent and natural right, which is what the work of Locke is about, gave birth to the traditional of classical liberalism and constitutionalism. But the quest for full sovereignty of the body politic did not end with Locke's second treatise, which actually had little impact when it was first published in 1690 and went almost unnoticed for several decades. A very different kind of thought soon became primitive in continental Europe was developed in the 1700s by a Geneva-born thinker for Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Sovereignty resides in the general will and accordingly individuals must be forced to be free in the social contract 1762 he wrote in order then that the social compact may not be an empty formula in tactility includes the undertaking which alone can give force to the rest that whoever refuses to obey the general will shall be compelled to do so by the whole body this means nothing less than that he will be forced to be free for this is the condition which by giving each citizen to his country, secures him against all personal dependence. In this lies the key to the working of the political machine, 
This alone legitimizes civil undertakings, which, without it, would be absurd, tyrannical, and liable to the most frightful abuses. In spite of the war on individuality declared both by Rossio and his Jacobian followers, classical liberalism did not completely die out on the continent. Frederic Bastat, in the middle of the 19th century, was one of the few political theorists to revive the natural rights tradition. In a famous pamphlet, he stated that life, liberty, and property do not exist because men have made laws. On the contrary, it was the fact that life, liberty, and property existed beforehand that caused men to make laws in the first place. What then is law? It is a collective organization of the individual right to a lawful defense. Each of us has a natural right from God to defend his person, his liberty, and his property. There are three basic requirements for life, and the preservation of any one of them is completely dependent upon the preservation of the other two. Just a year earlier, another French economist, Gustave de Molayani, published an article in the Journal de Economicus challenging for the first time that the state is its most vital monopoly function, the production of security. Molayani begins by quoting Donier, a classical liberal who believed that the, a state monopoly on law and order was a necessity. One economist who has done as much as anyone to extend the application of the principle of liberty, M. Charles Donier, thinks that the functions of government will never be able to fill into the domain of private activity. And then he poses this crucial question. But why should there be an exception relative to security? What special reason is there that the production of security cannot be relegated to free competition? Why should it be subjugated to a different principle and organization according to a different system? Molarani's argument for security as a commodity is simple and very appealing. It offers reason to believe that a well-established natural law can admit of exceptions. A natural law must hold everywhere and always be invalid. I consider economic laws comparable to natural laws. The production of security should not be removed from the jurisdiction of free competition. And if it is removed, society as a whole suffers a lot. Either this is logical and true, or else the principles on which economic science is based are invalid. His analysis goes on to show that there are two logical, non-competitive solutions, monopoly, the old monarchy, and communism, which he believed was on the rise and gaining ground everywhere. If communism will prove itself to be a good provider of protection, then it should work also in any other field of economics. Complete communism or complete freedom, that is the alternative. What if someone accepts neither monopoly nor communism? For these unlucky few, there is only violence. The monopolists and communists understand this necessity. If anyone says M. de Masre attempts to detract from the authority of God's chosen ones, let him be turned over to the secular power. Let the hangman perform his office. If anyone does not recognize the authority of these chosen by the people, say the theoreticians of the school of Rossiao. If he resists any decision whatsoever of the majority, let him be punished as an enemy of the sovereign people. Let the guillotine perform justice. Molinari ends his essay with a vision of a free society that, even a century and a half later, still inspires libertarians all around the world. Under a regime of liberty, the natural organization of the security industry would not be different from anything of any other industry. In small districts, a single entrepreneur could suffice. This entrepreneur might leave his business to his son or sell it to another entrepreneur. In larger districts, one company by itself would bring together enough resources adequately to carry on this important and different business. If it were well managed, this company could easily last and security could last with it. On the one hand, this would be a monarchy, and on the other, it would be a republic. But it would be a monarchy without monopoly, and a republic without communism. On either hand, this authority would be accepted and respected in the name of utility, and would not be an authority imposed by terror. The Lessons of European Realism The constitutionalist claim to justify the state's monopoly of violence has been challenged directly by the radical libertarian tradition, Molorani, and the individual anarchists such as Lysander Spooner. However, an important role in bringing the modern state into perspective has also been played by the European political realism, and in particular, by Carl Schmitt and the Italian elitist scholars Gattio Masche and Villafredo Pareto. 
Schmidt's important rests very much on his intuition that in every state there is a first political dimension and then a decision which cannot be obscured by the so-called impersonality of law and the superindividuality of orders. Beyond the apparent abstraction of the state, as described by Hans Kalins and other positivists, Schmidt uncovered choices, interests, and in short, people that impose their will on others. The constitutional thought of classical and contemporary liberalism has constantly tried to neutralize politics, but it has failed. In Schmidt's opinion, the real sovereign is the political group that has the final decision about the critical situation in the state of emergency. The locus of sovereignty thus becomes the political entity, which in our time is the state, and the decision of the state of emergency is the ultimate test of the sovereignty. Legal positivism tried hard to refute the importance of this notion, but critical decision-making is paramount in the development of human relations. Therefore, the liberal neutralization of politics sought by classical constitutionalism simply impossible. When the state, every state, is recognized as a structure of decisions and an instrument of domination wielded by some type of ruler, political modernity displays itself with no other clothes, and one can understand the illegitimacy as well the relationality of the monopoly of protection. There is nothing neutral or innocent in the power of a group of men that Italian elitists called the ruling class. Hobbes was wrong as a philosopher when he asserted that law comes from authority. However, we can agree with political scientists using the Hobbesian theory that state decisions are the result of conflicts of interest and opposing views in statist societies where the law is controlled by a monopolistic institution. It is force that dictates law. This is especially true in democratic countries where social life is marked by the competition for the control of the political center, i.e. the power to distribute resources, favors, and privileges. Schmidt's critique of the hypocrisy of liberal democracy is confirmed by the Italian elitist. The latter were convinced that in every political system there is a small group of men, an organized elite, dominating the large disorganized mass, as Pareto noted. The corruption of the parliamentary system meant that the interests of the majority were seconded to the interests and passions of a small and highly organized group. These were ready to use any means to extend their influence and to dominate the country. For this reason, democracy exists only as a political ideology devoted to protecting and legitimizing the power of a minority capable of taking advantage of its higher organization. Bruno Leone adopted political realism lessons of the Italian elitists in his critique of majoritarian democracy. In his opinion, eliminating all group decisions taken by aggressive coalitions would mean terminating once and for all the sort of legal warfare that sets up group against group in contemporary society because of the perpetual attempt of their respective members to constrain to their own benefit other members of the community to accept misproductive actions and treatment. In judicial and political philosophy, the hypothesis of a neutral state is often supported by the suggestion that this political institution is eternal. However, European political realism refused this arbitrary identification between state and politics. Social orientations generally support contemporary democracy, defining all forms of judicial organization as a part of the all-encompassing category state. A major contribution of Schmidt, as we noted in his placing the state in historical context, i.e. modernity. For all these reasons, European realism has contributed to uncovering the fabrications of constitutionalism, the conceptual frauds of democracy, and the fallacious idea that the state is an institutional reality as old as mankind. To be sure, Schmidt was almost theoretically sound expounder of the crisis of the state, but he did not identify a solution. Another protagonist of the European realism, the Lombard scholar Guaranifi Migalio, tried to go beyond Schmidt in some of his works. He explained the crisis of the Soviet state model. This was the downfall of the modern political system that showed the greatest confidence in the rationality of orders imposed with violence. Given that the Soviet Union has broken up, Migalio asserted that other state systems, especially the ones governed by democratic parliaments, would suffer growing criticism and dissent 
and might also collapse in the near future. The state is declining also because of its internal contradictions. In its attempt to appear as a non-aggressive provider of individual rights, the state has created a deceitful contractualism which is continually sapping its existence. From a theoretical point of view, Migalio observed, The modern state is a construction entirely based on the contract. It has extended into the non-political area of private life. Therefore, the state is historically a complex of services and provisions, a gigantic entity of contractual relationships. In fact, in spite of its ideological self-representation, the democratic state is an illustration of violence and monopoly unparalleled in human history. It exists because it is the only institution authorized to use force in a given territory. However, the notion of political obligation has lost vigor and consistency, while economy and communications are growing together with the rationality of free exchange, free markets, and free discussions. In Search of Libertarian Realism The force of Megalo's arguments derives from the fact that his speculative theory tries to bring together the pares duritens of European realism with the pars construtens of American libertarianism, although somewhat unconsciously. For Megalo, however, political communities are primary entities, while most contemporary libertarians like Rothbard accept Molirani's theory about the privatization of security and imagine a complete liberalization in the realm of law and order. It is not the usual occupations of contemporary states that are the focus of libertarian criticism. The state indeed performs many important and necessary functions, from provision of law to the supply of police and firefighters to building and maintaining the streets, to the delivery of mail, but this is in no way demonstrates that only the state can perform these functions, or indeed that it performs them even passably well. Rothbard's demystification of the state is appealing. In fact, he underlined a methodological integration of state and civil society and pursued a redacto ad uranum that eliminates every artificial frontier between men operating within the private and the public sectors. In his noted statement of the tenets of the libertarian creed, he asserted, The libertarian refuses to give the state a moral sanction to commit actions that almost everyone agrees would be immoral, illegal, and criminal if committed by any person or group in society. The libertarian, in short, insists on applying the general moral law to everyone and makes no special exceptions for any person or group. For libertarians, it is impossible to accept criminal behavior if carried out by lawmakers. It must be condemned, just as when simple citizens act in the same manner. Rothbard remarks that all other persons and groups in society, except for acknowledged and sporadic criminals such as thieves and bank robbers, obtain their income voluntarily, either by selling goods and services to the consuming public or by voluntarily gift, membership in a club or association, bequest or inheritance. Only the state obtains its revenue by coercion, by threatening dire penalties should the income not be forthcoming. In libertarian theory, Albert J. Nock analyzed the consequences of the situation in the 1930s. Taking the state wherever found, striking into its history at any point, one sees no way to differentiate the activities of its founders, administrators, and beneficiaries from those of professional criminal class. When the state exercises a monopoly of violence and punishes criminal behavior committed by ordinary citizens, it must legitimize itself and its own criminal behavior, Hence, Schmidt was right when he said that in state-ridden societies, there is always a decisional dimension, political and arbitrary, that nobody can ignore and no institution can eliminate. Rothbard also accepted the main tenets of elitism. His opinion is that the normal and continuing condition of the state is oligarch rule, rule by a coercive elite which has managed to gain control of the state machinery. His thesis is that an important argument. For the oligarch rule of the state is its parasitic nature, the fact that it lives coercively off the production of its citizenry to be successful to its practitioners. The fruits of parasitic exploitation must be confined to a relative minority, otherwise a meaningless plunder of all by all who would result in no gains for anyone. So Rothbard gave us a straightforward explanation of the fact that a minority controls the state 
and he often used Oppenheimer's distinction as we noted, possibly the only utilizable reflection to be found in the state between economic means and political means. There are two fundamentally opposed means whereby man, requiring sustenance, is impelled to obtain the necessary means for satisfying his own desires. These are to work and robbery, one's own labor and the forcible appropriation of the labor of others. I propose in the following discussion to call one's own labor and the equivalent exchange of one's own labor for the labor of others the economic means and the satisfaction of needs, while the unrequited appropriation of the labor of others will be called the political means. If the state exists to exploit the great mass of the population, then a small minority must control the loot. It is here that the libertarianism underlines the fragility of modern politics, always unable to justify the different conditions of the government and the elite, the governed populace, it is obvious that this situation can only be appreciated by understanding the historical evolution of the state. It should be evident that this institution has been imposed to the disadvantage of all types of social and political autonomy. This existed in previous times. The factual character inherent in most libertarian analysis of the state should bring us to understand the important link between libertarianism and European realism. The realist following Schmidt considers sovereignty an abstract and impersonal concept having very little to do with authenticity. Thus, a stream of contemporary libertarian thought trying to reestablish the intellectual legitimacy of a sort of pre-modern past, which the concept and the reality of state institutions tried to cancel, seems to us perfectly sound. The key to the rise of the state can also be found in personal feuds of medieval Germanic populations and the gradual abolition of this practice. Otto Brunner showed that the modern political judicial rationalization implied the disarming of citizens, which was followed by the creation of an increasingly armed bureaucracy. The disarming of individuals and the abolition of their possibility to act in defense of their own rights paved the way for the creation of a monopoly of legislation, which in turn led to the submission of an entire society. But what was this ancient feud? It was above all an action to correct a wrong, and therefore it was construed as a right. The legitimacy of feud depended above all on just claim. The feud of enmity were at heart a struggle for right that aimed at retribution and reparation for violation of one's rights. Within medieval judicial order, and indeed within their institutions, we see sovereigns and subjects declare war and conclude peace with each other as if each were subject to international law. The link between the histocracy of the state and the political realism is very important. The analysis of Brunner about the medieval feud is interesting also because it underscores the fact that law and society are a result of individual acts. Bruno Leone's writings about the individual claim illustrate the attempt to construe a realistic theory on the origins of law based on methodological individualism. Medieval history offers a corroboration of this thesis. For Leone, Norms are the result of an exchange of individual claims, as the price is the result of a negotiation between buyer and seller, but also the feud solution of medieval law can be analyzed as the conclusion of an interaction between the victim who asks for justice and the offender who must satisfy the claims of the victim and refund the damages. In fact, the feud was not an arbitrary initiative. Its is essential premise was the existence for a judicial foundation. Without a wrong being committed, there was no feud, but simply brute force, rebellion, and aggression. On the other hand, Brunner showed that in a legitimate feud, the parties were required to offer justice in some sort of preliminary negotiations. In many cases, a feud was simply a right but also a duty that took priority over an individual's obligation to a third party, a creditor in particular. The strides toward political modernity canceled the political judicial order without the monopoly of law, where each vassal could lawfully initiate violence against his own lord in order to have his reasons recognized. As Otto Brunner noted, prohibiting feuds was not a matter of a simple act of state, 
it entailed a fundamental change in the structure of law and politics. Of course, some historians are quite content with the category feudalism, which they adopt to explain pretty much everything in Europe, from the fall of the Roman Empire to the Renaissance. We concur with Brunner that this is a convenient cover for everything that one does not understand about the Middle Ages. Some scholars have developed historical institution analysis to show the historicity of the state and the fact that it is the only one, and certainly not the best, of many possible forms of social cooperation. There are a number of non-state judicial organizations, although which, although marginal, and nonetheless important for our historical comprehension of the problem. Typical societies without government that have been studied by libertarians include prehistoric civilization, ancient Iceland, primeval Ireland, and the American West. In the future, we need to look more into the medieval period, and in particular, at the latter stages of its peak between the 11th and 15th centuries. It is from the medieval polycentric and self-regulated judicial order that many useful suggestions could come to widen our concept of liberty. Also, this world is the very core of Western civilization, when the realities celebrated by the libertarians as societies without state are somewhat peripheral. Prior to the rise of the state, law and its interpreters had to recognize the existence of traditions, ethnic family ties, and customs of culture. Law was mostly unwritten. It coincided with customs, and therefore it existed in a series of concrete cases that were outside the control of any political authority. It was to be found in the realms of jurisdiction and the theoretical debates made by theologians and jurists in the medieval period that law was far from an all-encompassing instrument of modern societies. There were two levels of law within medieval society, lex divana and lex humana. The latter was never intended as an act of free will, but rather as a constant and imperfect attempt to impose divine rationality on nature and society. And the tensions that united and div divided divine law and human law an extraordinary intellectual work emerged, witnessed by the scholastic Quintianus in St. Thomas. Therefore, law was quotum de men practice rationis, an expression of practical reason. The greatest effort consisted of finding the strength and limits of historical laws to be able to recognize laws necessary for society that were coherent with how God had ordained the world. Communities by Consent market for protection, and the new world order. One of the more characteristic features of the medieval period was the dimension of the traditional community. The isolated individual did not exist either socially or politically. The international characteristic of modern law as an act of free will of those who are in power and the centrality of the individual without relations, without a history or identity completely abstract and simply a part of the welfare state, are therefore closely linked. Contemporary libertarianism, after decades of oblivion of community, has also developed a tendency to rethink the individual and to emphasize his strong ties within a community. Furthermore, the free market can be appreciated fully for its ability to connect individuals, thereby favoring communications and the development of a sense of community. The market, in fact, allows for the emergence of the relationship based on trust. This is essential for the quest for a society capable of minimizing the role of violence like the one envisioned by libertarians. Protection agencies competing for customers could be the means to create a consensus and trust among those who require security. This free market for protection favored by libertarians would be a prelude to a revitalization of interpersonal relationships. On the other hand, economic analysis of the state redistribution and studies on rent-seeking have shown that in its terminal stages, statist politics is a bitter struggle for everyone against everyone else in search of privileges. The triumph of the Habesian state of war occurs inside the body politic, within the borders of the sovereign power. At the beginning of the 21st century, Leviathan seems to have concluded its own parabola in a society dominated by conflicts without rules. Contemporary politics faces a dilemma. Should the state protect 
individuals as individuals, or should it consider men as members of a group? If it opts for the former, it must ignore the identity and culture to the point of obliterating traditions in the name of the commonwealth, the republican values. Or, on the other hand, if it considers individuals as part of a group, the state must accept the balkanization of political society. This in turn implies that the power becomes the fulcrum of a cartel of ethnic, religious, or cultural groups that look after their own interests to the detriment of everybody else's rights. Indeed, within the state, each difference becomes an excuse for conflict and contrast. Contrary to the critics of libertarianism, the commercialization of protection does not lead to the disorder of endemic conflict and war without solutions. Once again, the medieval experience shows that conflicts are less frequent and their consequences less bloody. Furthermore, the inability to reach the lawmaking process, the seat of ultimate decision-making as the former was placed in no particular center and the latter simply did not exist, made the risks associated with raging war not even viable. The fragmentation of medieval politics had the merit of making all institutions weak and each army small. As Jen Batchelor showed in his famous work on the origins of capitalism, it was medieval anarchy that helped create the dynamism of the first capitalism, both in the northern Italian and Flemish communes in the marketplaces of France. The weakness of politics was the strength of the merchants and vice versa. We believe that a careful re-examination of the past can be a means of regaining efficient strategies for liberty. The failure of public monopolies in facing crime has already aided the spread of private security agencies to protect banks, companies, and residential areas. It is reasonable to imagine that the number and size of these activities will continue to grow in the future, as it has done extraordinarily over the past 22 years. There are no contradictions, furthermore, between the libertarian defense of secessionist processes, which led to the development of smaller territorial monopolies, and the hypothesis of a market where protection is guaranteed by insurance companies and private police forces. Both strategies are closely related, because if secessionist practices are able to challenge state control of the territory, they also tend to create new and smaller protection monopolies. These, in turn, are less capable of subduing their own citizens. Thanks to reduced exit costs and to the widening supply of governmental services. However, the breakup of the nation-state, which might be in our horizon, will not be able by itself to secure a libertarian future. One need only to observe what is happening on an international level to see that the concept of law enforcement is quickly gaining ground. It is in such a logic that we could envision the old nation-states abandoned to their fate and the new status thinkers and builders bottling the same old wine in new flasks. Given the great difficulty within national borders, state law enforcement is trying to re-legitimize itself within a new world order, which thanks to the United Nations, NATO, and the like, would want to ensure maximum protection to all our rights. This project is very dangerous because public opinion can only vaguely understand the risks associated with the construction of a world government. Humanitarian interventionism, which is opening the path towards this goal, seems to meet with favor from the general public as well from the pundits. In David Held's view, for instance, globalization means that our actual citizenship cannot be defined by membership in a nation-state, and democracy will not mean participation in purely national politic process. In the sense, according to Held, we need to think in terms of cosmopolitan democracy. What has already happened in Europe is very significant. If present trends continue, the different European peoples, daily wrapped up in conflicts and difficulties caused by their own states, are about to be subject to the authority of a continental superstate, even without realizing it. This new government will try to harmonize fiscal policies, not to lower taxes, to be sure, and every other type of control of individual resources. At the end, perhaps, Brussels will command every political decision and succeed in building a new imperial state alongside the United States. The expressions world government and cosmopolitan democracy are all only elusive and they suggest a very general hypothesis. However, 
The success of global power cannot be foretold, and we will never be sure whether this unified legal order, centralized and tyrannical, will take place of the actual nation-states. In his analysis of the use of violence, which is the proper of the state, Charles Tilley distinguishes four different activities of the public agents, war-making, eliminating or neutralizing their own rivals outside the territories in which they have clear and continuous priority as wielders of force, state-making, eliminating or neutralizing the rivals inside those territories, protection, eliminating or neutralizing the enemies of their clients, and extraction, acquiring the means of carrying out the first three activities, war-making, state-making, and protection. Nobody can predict whether the international organizations will ever be ready to satisfy all these conditions. They are merely increasing their authority and the capacity to control the resources of individuals, but they are still unable to discipline states. There is a certain irony in the fact that freedom seekers all around the globe must rely on the states, unwillingness to comply with the far-reaching political dreams of Euro and world unifications, the contemporary resistance of the state to this historical nemesis of its own logic. The same one that is in the past has paved the road to the rise of political modernity is now digging its grave, seems to be the only realistic hope for individual liberties. If human history continues the current ominous evolution toward a reinforcement of global political institutions, it is fairly likely that the world order will be marked by a shared concurrent power between the old nation-states and the new center. The history of the American federalism and the recent evolution of the European Union should provide some useful insights to understand this kind of dynamic. In any case, today's cultural struggle seems clear-cut. On the one side, there is an emergence of theoretical hypothesis and business solutions which redirect an ever-increasing amount of power and free choice into the hands of individuals. The liberalization process of industrial sectors and the globalization of markets have favored this trend. Secessionist pressure and the increasing demand for private protection are other signs of this tendency. Against these overall positive tendencies, there is a zealous attempt of the monopolistic classics to preserve their privileges by the preparation of universal institutions created to abolish all types of dictatorship, protect civilians in all corners of the world, spreading liberal culture and practices. The struggle against poverty, sufferance, and ignorance, which have in the past been the pretext to justify socio-economic interventions by governments and the domination of political classes, has now reappeared as planetary welfareism. And this new statism is aimed at creating a technical structural monopoly capable of imposing its own wishes on everyone. The contemporary humanitarian liberal agenda, which caused the most recent conflicts, is something truly paradoxical and contradictory. The attempt to justify war by the political classes of NATO was shielded by the champion of individual rights. The crimes committed by those who bombed the civilian Serbian population was, were justified with constant referral to the civilian situations in Kosovo. Thus, states disappeared and the war appeared to be what it actually was, a conflict between individuals, groups, and coalitions. War returned to being something similar to the medieval feud, even if it had no moral legitimacy. By refusing to confer upon Meslovex Serbia the traditional dignity granted by two states and the Western allies showed the very nature of their own institutions. In its hypocritical appeal to individual rights of Kosovo citizens, NATO was forced to ignore the rights of Yugoslavian as a state and thus to accept the view of the European realism and the American libertarianism. This bloody episode shows the same logic, which could lead to a world government, could also lead to an opposite direction, the return of individual and ethnic rights, even only as an excuse for political imperialism, could favor the dissolution of nation-states, of large continental empires, and the mainstream political culture. Many libertarians have singled out international relationships among individuals in times of peace as examples of contractual agreements. Voluntary jurisdiction and the minimal coercion, we may witness a fundamental change. The conflict between liberty and coercion will continue to make its mark on human history in the future, and the international arena will probably be more important battlefield than the domestic one. And that marks the end of the first article of the myth of defense 
by Hans Hermann Hoppe. It's actually a collection of different articles written by different people because the second one is actually written by Murray Rothbard. And with this collection here, I feel like there's a couple key takeaways that are very important was the creation of the myth of the state as an entity rather than an idea. And this was kind of how the state has circumceded itself to become this omnipotent, overly arching, you know, force in the world that everybody sees to be like, well, you know, we can't do that because the government would, you know, insert reason why the government would do whatever it is here. Like every single person you talk to in society today, for the most part, who aren't even aware of just normal situations of this movement of freedom and liberty and sovereignty aren't even aware that like that this is how they think. They think and believe that there's this mythical being that is the state that will come in to save them or to do things for them and what we have is a bunch of people who actually obfuscate their responsibility for certain things to the state so therefore they aren't responsible for them anymore like you take homelessness for example people will you know well what is the state of whatever state you're in insert here going to do about the homelessness problem like what what do you, what do you mean? What is the state going to do? What what why can't? What are you going to do? In the end, there's only you, the individual. Like, why are you trying to push off the responsibility of what you wish things to be done in the real world onto this mythic entity that is the state? Like, if you want to help the homeless, why don't you go and help the homeless yourself? Like, th- it's like this this obfuscation of that responsibility to that this I should be able to vote for this thing that you should help homeless people that makes this inability for the individual to believe that they can actually foster change in the world. And we as individuals have to come to a fundamental understanding that we have the power to change. We just have to change ourselves first. And in changing ourselves, we therefore change our communities as a whole in aggregate if every single individual changes a little part of themselves about themselves then therefore the whole entity of community changes as a whole over time and but there's that inapp a point of people who like when they say that the state should do something about the homelessness problem they are therefore giving over the power of their ability to actually help the homelessness problem in any way, shape, or form, and therefore making it somebody else's responsibility to do it, therefore making themselves unable to do it because, you know, the state should do it instead. Um, The next part that I thought was really good in this portion of the book was using the political center to gain leverage and using the system to prop up one group over another. And I feel like this is a very key point. And trying to understand that there is no differentiation between the political parties. This is why most people, when they say, when people who do truly understand liberty say that there is no left and right, there is only the political class and you, that is fundamentally the truth. Because what ends up happening is that these two different, quote unquote, different powers, the left and the right, whatever they may be, are only fighting over for the ability to be able to impose their ideas onto the majority of the people by being voted into power, by having the power to do so. So no longer is the will of the people doing what's best for themselves. It's let's fight over this centralized power structure, which is the government, and use that and its powers of being able to have the thuggery to enforce the will on to everybody else because we have control of the apparatus that gives us the grand authority to tell these other people what to do. You know, they, we, so what inevitably happens, we can see this in our society today is that the system actually uses this system of whatever. So what, what they'll do is they'll try to get you to quote unquote vote for them by uh, trying to use certain types of groups of people you know, to foster this whole idea of, well, if you vote for me, I'm going to help the homeless. The homeless is this group of people or the LGBTQ people. This, that's another group of 
people that they try to use it. They'll use those groups of people, even though those groups of people really are just individuals themselves, but they'll use that as a, a, a leverage to try to, you know, prop up their, their, their vie for that center of power. They're going to use these groups of disparate individuals which are just basically groups of people, but they use those groups of people or these marginalized groups of people as reasons to justify why you should put them in power because they're going to quote unquote help those people. But if you ever notice when that happens, like nothing ever actually changes. They say that they're going to do these things and they say that they're going to make these things better by, you know, appealing to these marginalized groups of people that they use, but they just use that as a leverage to, uh, Manipulate your mind and make you feel that if by doing this thing of going into a booth and putting a check on a piece of paper that you're doing something to help these people when in actuality you would probably do more good if you actually went out to these people and actually physically asked them, hey, what do you need help with? What can I help you with? Do you, do you need food? Do you need some money? Do you need a job? Like I've got a business. I can give you a job. Like you would probably have a better impact on those marginalized people by doing that, by actually going to these groups of people and asking them what you could do for them than appointing to some individual of political apparatus and having them try to quote unquote do something for these people because then it just becomes a fight over that apparatus of what groups of people are we going to try to use to benefit ourselves in order to get that apparatus of power it's it's this it's it's monotonical it's ridiculous and then there's also what i also thought was another good key takeaway point was the state is in this like very dichotomy of choosing whether they should protect the individual or protect the group so when the state tries to protect individuals they actually destroy the identity of insert group whatever here like you know the by recognizing that they're trying to protect the individuals they're destroying the idea of uh christianity group doesn't matter or lgbtq people don't matter or you know the the jew people don't matter or you know the uh, the libertarian people don't matter they're you're destroying the identity and culture of these people by trying to say that the individual person is the only person who matters but then at the same time when you try to say that we're going to protect the group people so we're going to we're going to protect the gays we're going to protect the jews we're going to protect the christians we're going to protect the homeless like you start putting these people into groups then at the same time by doing that and going that way you are destroying the individuality of every human being and everybody is just going to try to divulge and de-evolve into this group think herd mentality of well i'm just a you know i identify as group x because group x gets preferential treatment from this government agency so therefore i'm only going to want to identify as that group and then you know you're just destroying the individual whatsoever and by just you know when they try to protect one over the other they end up destroying the other by choosing the other so literally the state because it exists and has to live within this realm of choosing which types of people to protect the individual or the group it ends up being like lose lose like when there's no way for them to choose a situation in which they are able to do that so what would be the best answer would be that the individual gets to choose what's best way to protect themselves because if the individual chooses how best to protect themselves outside of the protection of the state then the individual is protected by getting together with cons other individuals and entering into a consensual agreement of protection therefore all the gays would be protected because all the gays would get together and want to protect themselves and all of the christians would get together and want to protect themselves so individual prop up the group therefore prop up the society as a whole therefore in the aggregate the individual is the person that matters the individual choice of each individual person with consent to other individuals to come to an agreement of consensual agreements and contractual agreements is the crux of what matters with this type of thing so those are some key takeaways that i uh took away from uh this this article here that i thought was very important to try to remember and to try to bring to the forefront of the 
illegitimacy of the state because, you know, the state should not exist. But we are in this era of the state has always been, therefore the state will always be nonsense. And this is why I created this channel. This is why I created this for make making these types of articles more relevant, more easy to to be able to digest because I know I was somebody who couldn't sit down and read a lot. But now that I'm making myself read these articles and recording them so that more people can have access to these articles, I feel like it's going to help more people and be able to help them think deeply and more relevant about these types of topics. So I hope you guys like this one. We shall continue with chapter two, or I should say the second article, which is going to be War, Peace, and the State by Murray Rothbard. And I will get to that probably sometime this weekend, I hope. I hope I can get to it this weekend. I'm going to try. I'm going to do my best. But until then, guys, please, if you guys have any articles that you guys feel is relevant, if you guys have any comments, questions, please feel free to email me at axiomsofliberty at proton.me. Send it to my way. I actually am on Fountain and Breeze now, so I'm on Podcasting 2.0, so I can accept donations, value for value. Feel free to do so. If this provided you any value, if you found any value in these topics, and I appreciate it. Until next time, guys, take it easy.